Welcome to the Permanent Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Lindsay, a Senior Vice President at the Niskanen Center. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the messy and uncertain transition from mass affluence to mass flourishing, exploring what I call capitalism's triple crisis and the potential for rising above it. On this episode of The Permanent Problem, I'm pleased to have as my guest, Jim Pethokoukas, a senior fellow and the DeWitt Wallace Chair at the American Enterprise Institute, author of the must-read substack, Faster Please, most recently author of the superb new book, The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. Jim, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you so much for having me on. Delighted to do it. Absolutely. So I want to talk all about your book, but first I want to focus a little bit on the author, a little bit of biographical detail. Oh, oh boy. So when were you born and where did you grow up? Uh, I was born uh, in the one of the uh, robust post-war decades, <laughs> 1967, grew up in the, in the uh, Chicago suburbs, okay. a wor- working class neighborhood in the Chicago suburbs. And uh, you have brothers and sisters? I have, a, I have uh, one brother who is still in the Chicago uh, suburbs, and uh, I, uh, I've moved around a, a bit since there, uh, Los Angeles to Virginia, back to Chicago, and now in the beautiful Washington, D.C. And uh, tell me about your, your parents. What did they do, and what was their politics? How did they produce a conservative futurist? Yeah, uh, well, my, uh, my father is from Massachusetts, loves the Kennedys. Loved him. Uh, I think later, later, in, later, he was he was certainly not a uh, a Republican by any means. I think he may have voted for Ross Perot. Was not a big fan of the uh, of George uh, Bush or the Bush family. Um, he had a lot of political views. Uh, I don't think he'd be easy to categorize uh, at all because he loved the Kennedys. I think he also liked Ron Paul or something. Again, very hard to classify. And uh, my, my 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 mother certainly was not very political. Yeah. Sounds, uh, like, he, uh, sounds like he had a soft spot for ornery outsiders, Ross Perot. <laughs> yeah, he was a, he was ornery. Uh, he was an ornery outsider, so he liked it. Just guys with the initial RP, maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, uh, my uh, my mother was a stay at home my mom, and my father did many many uh, many many different things. And uh, so, where did your conservatism come from? Were you interested in politics as a kid, or did that come later? Yeah, I think it's interesting because, uh, you know, I'm, so I'm Generation X and sort of the, the stereotype of Generation X, I think, probably comes from, you know, the Breakfast Club, you know, the outsiders and they, they don't care about anything and they're whatever. And there certainly is like that Gen X stereotype. But then there's also sort of the other one, which I think more of is like Alex P. Keaton from uh, Family Ties, who was, uh, who, you know, saw the world around him in the 80s and was thinking, wow, things are really getting better. America seems to have solved its problems. The Soviet Union's on the run. The economy's booming. Like, this is awesome. And, uh, you know, I was old enough to experience sort of to understand, like, how the country went off course in the uh, 70s. Most people uh, probably don't know, like, how, like, embedded in popular culture was the idea that something had gone wrong. Like, the idea of inflation in the 70s they would joke about that on, uh, like on sitcoms. And I, again, I was very aware of the early 80s recession. And so when things turned around the 80s, to me, it seemed like, you know, like this, like we had found the formula for peace and prosperity, which was sort of the, you know, Reaganomics, which was, you know, cutting regulations and tax cuts and having a strong defense and having a very robust presence in the world. So that made, that obviously made a huge impression. I mean, uh, my family, which never did well, all I know is that we went from the early 19, during that recession to like the local churches bringing us food to like, by the late 80s, my mother had enough money squirreled away to buy me a pair of Air Jordan sneakers. So going from that, so that was a, that made a massive impression on me. Lived experience uh, is yeah. a big deal. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm five years older than you. So my memories of the 70s are a little bit more vivid and, and I, Concur completely. The one thing everybody agreed on, where, wherever they were on the ideological or whatever spectrum, was that uh, things had gone to hell. And, and, was, and they weren't going to get better. Like, yeah. I mean, that was a thing. Like, we have entered this period of, 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 of decline, and we need to change our expectations. 
And, you know, that certainly met me my natural personality. Like that notion never really appealed to me. Listen, I, I, I grew up, I went to a, uh, uh, despite my last name, um, I, uh, I'm Dutch on my mother's side. So I went to this very conservative Dutch reform school and like the notion that like, and this was actually wasn't confined to there. You saw it elsewhere, uh, among some people, you know, Christians on the right was like, these were the end times. There were lots of books out about, there's a book called the late great planet earth yeah. that came out, which was always out, the, you know, that dark times were ahead. But again, it, while that was sort of was kind of fascinated the sci-fi aspect of my personality i've always sort of been an optimist and you know that you know living that kind of life and that that kind of experience having those kind of expectations then informing your politics just was not i I probably was never going to go that way so you just mentioned uh, your your uh interest in sci-fi uh which goes along with your conservatism to uh to bring us the book you've written so uh that was uh, an unintentional segue um so anybody who reads you knows you're a sci-fi fan, and in particular a, a, a Star Trek fan. Uh, that comes up a lot. When did you discover Star Trek? In syndication? In boyhood? Yeah. Uh, and now, people today are just, uh, they take for granted the bounty, the vast <laughs> bounty of science fiction uh, they have at their disposal. It was certainly not like that, you know, starting in the 70s. Yeah, I caught Star Trek on syndication. Uh, uh, probably, uh, it's probably WGN in Chicago, and it was so much better. Even though by the time I started watching it, it had you know it had been you know you know it's the case for some time. It still seemed light years ahead, no pun intended, of uh, all other science fiction. The you know the qual the quality of the stories, the seriousness of what, which it took the genre. Yeah, so I was I you know that's what I would look forward to watching, and it also you know had an optimism which by the by the 1970s, you really stopped seeing in science. It really was an artifact of the 60s, both in sort of the new frontier Kennedy S. Captain and uh, James T. Kirk. But just overall that like whatever our problems were, we would solve them and we would go forward, which again, by the 70s, you just did not see in science fiction, which by that time had already taken a real sort of pessimistic dystopian uh, turn, which again, we're neat and I liked it, but you know, that, that wasn't going to inspire me. Yeah, absolutely. So you went to college, you went to Northwestern, right? Yes. And you were in the journalism school? I was not. I was in it. Later, uh, I was a uh, a history political science major, and I eventually went back to the beautiful Medill School of Journalism and got a master's degree in journalism after uh, afterwards, after working at an investment bank and this and that. Uh, so yes, I actually went back and had a, uh, got a very expensive uh, journalism degree. Not something I necessarily recommend to people today. And uh, and for your undergraduate studies, didn't wasn't Soviet politics one of your concentrations? Yeah, I, I was I was just I was I, I was always very fascinated in the sort of the Cold War and that rivalry. Uh, obviously, that was a big part of uh, the Reagan foreign policy agenda. And then, of course, like the, you know, the fact that we we uh, we we thought we had a master stroke with this strategic defense initiative, which was going to totally rearrange the balance of power, really attracted me because that's like exactly the kind of thing I'm like, we're going to solve this thing through a, again, you know, cutting the Gordian knot, you know, uh, with American ingenuity and Yankee know-how. In fact, I think my final big like thesis paper for the poli sci side was literally about the strategic defense initiative. Okay. Which I think I still have squirreled away so, uh, somehow, but again, you know, but again, it, it all sort of really fit nicely to what I was uh, interested in. Okay. So let's just pause for a moment though, and, and contemplate your early track record as a futurist. You major, <laughs> you major in Soviet studies and yes. you get, and you get a degree in journalism. It's the, worse than that. You, you, <laughs> the ball was just a bit cloudy. You're you're worse. It's worse than that because I'm because like I li- I, mean, I literally because uh, some people are like oh so you majored in Russian history? I go no 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 no. It was Soviet politics yeah. right on the verge of the absolute collapse. So uh, you know I eighty nine. Yeah, I graduate. I graduated in eighty nine. So really, so really, it was amazing. Degree right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, uh, yeah. The uh, it's a fun, fun sort of self-deprecating joke I can make about myself. So, uh, walk us through your journalism career. I, I, I see is the high points. Uh, you started off in Investors Business Daily, off to U.S. News and World Report, CNBC, Reuters. Tell us uh, what was the most important or formative of, of those journalistic experiences. Yeah, I, I think what was really important is sort of when I got into it. So uh, by the time. 
you know, I moved out to California and worked at Investors Business Daily, which was like the the very much, much, much smaller rival to the Wall Street Journal. But it was at a time that we started to see the the emergence of the internet revolution and these stocks begin to take off. And I focused a lot on technology stocks, stocks that were on the NASDAQ. And uh, it really gave me sort of a ringside seat to like, you know, all these companies going public, new technologies. And when I went over to U.S. News, again, I tend to focus a lot. Uh, I started off as, you know, covering uh, the stock market. And, and I really saw the potential. I got caught up in like, this, something has changed. Something has fundamentally changed with the American economy and I get to, you know, watch it and cover it. And, and you saw this also reflected, certainly saw it in Silicon Valley. I, I talk a bit in the book about, you know, Wired Magazine as sort of, which became sort of the preeminent in a way futurist publication at the time. And there was a broad notion that the, all those dreams of the sixties, which seemed to have been delayed for a generation, uh, all these, you know, you know, colonization and cures and flying cars that, yeah, we had a delay, but by the late 1990s, we could see like that was the future, which was obviously ahead of us. I mentioned uh, I had kept this for years, which was the uh, late 1999 uh, decade ahead forecast from Lehman Brothers, which was a very go go. The digital economy is here. The late 90s will continue forever, uh, certainly for the next decade. And of course, you know, even Lehman Brothers didn't make it. Talk about bad futures, right. and they did not make it another a decade. But certainly that was a massive disappointment that what seemed like the finally we saw the blossoming of a, a, of a new kind of economy and a really a leap forward stalled out after that sort of internet boom. And certainly that's something I address in the book. So when did you when did you make it to AI? That was in uh, 2011. Okay. Um, you know, they sort of uh, reached out to me. I wasn't necessarily looking for something, but the idea of, you know, you know, working at a think tank and being able to focus exclusively on the kinds of things I was really interested in, because I, I was at Reuters at the time and I was doing commentary for the Breaking Views unit, which was kind of a mix of kind of economics, but really from like a Washington perspective, writing on policy uh, and just like the idea of having a lot more control over what I did. And also, given my nonstop concerns of that you know, about journalism and the viability of any journalist institution, uh, made going work at a think tank pretty attractive for me. Okay, let me cover uh, one more biographical detail uh, sure. that's worth uh, worth noting. You're a you're a Jeopardy champion. Mm. I'm deeply envious. So, back in the late '80s, when I started working, I I became just a, a Jeopardy obsessive, and I watched every night. And you know, I've got a head for trivia, and so most nights I thought I would have won. And so I, I thought quite seriously, you know, that, that I should do this. I should, I should apply and try to try to get on. But, but I'll have to tell you, I was terrified of choking. I was terrified. I wouldn't figure out the controller or I just have a, you know, a brain fog at the wrong moment or some question that I knew backwards and forwards, I would freeze on and I would make a fool of myself on national television. I couldn't bear it. So I, my hat's off to the man in the arena who, who had the guts to do it and who actually pulled it off. So that must've been a cool experience. I, I will say people think like you cannot prepare for it, like you know what you know. One, everybody who goes on that show absolutely prepares. They hunker down with an almanac or what have you for weeks. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people did what I did, which we created a mock-up of the of the controller and uh, the clicker and, and, and just practice doing that on the, as we'd answer questions while watching it on TV. And that kind of muscle memory helps. I, I found that most people... Uh, that you know, certainly on that show could have answered most of the questions. And it was really like answering first it was a skill. And the, and the people who went on to win like dozens and dozens of episodes in a row, they just got really good at that clicker. I mean, they knew the answers and maybe they were slightly better at knowing the answers, but they were just good sort of Jeopardy athletes. So when did you do that? What year? 2002 maybe 2003 so it, it, it's long enough and it's, it's long enough behind that I, I i shouldn't even mention it anymore but i'm glad when people do well it's interesting that you're uh, you're one of three jeopardy champions i know from think tank journalism world uh john padoritz uh, yes that's what i was gonna say <laughs> and uh and tom nichols ah excellent so, a select group all right let's turn to your book the conservative right. yeah. Interest. sure right, start with the process question uh, you turn out a whole bunch of content every week on your newsletter, and I assume you have other AEI duties. Where in the world did you find the time to, to do this? 
I did not take a like book break, a three month, uh, you know, a sabbatical or something. It was really, uh, you know, I start, I really started writing it. Like probably a lot of people have books coming out this time, uh, you know, in the summer of 2020. I didn't have to commute to work. Uh, that 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 freed up a a big chunk of time. And I was, and frankly, I was just so interested in the topic, and I just kind of wanted to get my thoughts out there. And I also learned a lot while you know while writing it. That uh, to me, it was just a it was really a labor of love that I didn't mind you know spending time on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings doing it, or even in the uh, evenings. I just kind of wedged in when I uh, when I could, and you now I put it down for a little while, picked it back up. So um, you know, I, I, I found the time. When did you start on the manuscript? Uh, well, I started. I started actually research and writing almost simultaneously, probably in the summer of 2020. Okay. Uh, I think I turned in a final manuscript in January of this year. And I, again, I, I put it aside for a while, then I went back. So actually the whole publishing process was very condensed because I really wanted to get it out yep. in 2023 because that was the anniversary of what I call in the book, the great downshift in U.S. technological progress and productivity growth, 1973. So I wanted to get it out this year. And when I finally got the, found the publisher, I'm like, let's just accelerate it. And everything was probably done again in probably half the time as would normally take. Good. So let me, uh, let me offer my, uh, my take on what the book is all about. I, I see it as I see it as, as an extended take on Peter Thiel's famous complaint. Uh, we wanted flying cars. Instead, we got 140 characters. So basically, start off in the middle of the 20th century. The American system of technological dynamism is pumping on all cylinders. Uh, the dreams of kids like me who were growing up in the 1960s were full of moon bases and flights to Mars and underwater cities and nuclear-powered everything and, of course, flying cars. But then... Sometime in the early 1970s, you put it in 1973 just now, things changed. They changed dramatically and for the worse. We put footprints on the moon, but then we stopped going there. We developed supersonic airplanes, but then we stopped building them. We tamed the power of the atom, and then we stopped building nuclear power plants. And meanwhile, more broadly, uh, productivity growth slowed to a crawl, as did the ability to build anything new in the physical world. Uh, you call this abrupt negative change, the great downshift, which I think is a, with a nod to Tyler Cowen's similar concept of the great stagnation. Uh, so the point of the book, as I see it, is to describe how this great downshift came about, why we may now be coming out of it, and what we can do to increase our chances of doing so. Is that about right? I think it's about right. But, but here, no, hearing you say it back to me uh, really reminds me how, as I started to write the book in 2020, it was far more of a lament than probably what it turned out to be. Because over that time, over that time, I mean, like things have started popping a little bit. And I was able to really, uh, I'm glad the book took a little while to, I think, eventually write and 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 find a publisher, which uh, when I did was fantastic. Because then I could begin to see like, you know, what was happening with SpaceX and that we actually saw these, uh, you know, these uh, uh, CRISPR cures begin to go through the approval process. And, and, and obviously AI, which uh, the, you know, the, the uh, unleashing of ChatGP in November 2022 really helped, I think, cement the book and really give it a, uh, a, a, a purpose showing that like, this is possible. Whether or not this this technology, I hope, turns out to be as important. Like I think now we see the seeds of where this doesn't just have to be about a slowdown and a future loss. It could be about a future that we can regain. That's interesting and surprising to me. I I, I would have thought that you would have started with the optimistic frame from the get go. Um, but the original uh, title was Lost Future. Oh wow! wow. <laughs> yeah. So when did you when did you realize that we had gone into a great downshift? I, I will say that I read Tyler Cowen's Great Stagnation when it came out in 2011, and I was not persuaded at that time. At that time, I saw the the productivity growth crash of the 70s and 80s as a kind of a temporary aberration, and then we had, had come back in you know full glory in the 90s, and now we were in the recession, and who knew what that was? You know, a lot of volatility, and who knew what was happening? So it took many years of very disappointing post recession you know, melees for me to wrap my head around the fact that, yes, the real continuity here is from 73 to the present of slow productivity growth. And we had this little 10 year or less than 10 year mini boom in the 90s. So it, it took me well into the teens to, to wrap my head around 
this kind of pessimistic story of the past 50 years. Were you on the same kind of time frame or did you get there faster? Yeah, I was certainly hoping that, um, and I thought that, you know, that the, that the global financial crisis shows just so scrambled everything that it was going to take a while to sort of for the, for the statistics to say something meaningful about what was going on. I mean, we're seeing the same thing with the uh, pandemic. And then when we saw, Certainly, the smartphone would would giving giving all giving so many people in humanity a supercomputer basically in their pockets. Like surely there would be a massive impact from that. That would go far beyond ride sharing and Airbnb. Though I certainly saw those as as uh, as hints of uh, of things to come. You know, ideas which people ha- had had earlier certainly, but weren't able to do like in the nineties because they lacked the bandwidth and the uh, and the smartphones. But then, like, we just didn't see it. Then you, didn't, you really didn't see it. You really didn't see it in the data. The argument that all we were getting out of this was really social media, as which I don't think, I certainly don't think is unimportant and people find valuable. But that was not, that was not going to be a game changer. That was not, you know, you know, doubling the pace of the economy. And that was not, uh, gee, during this whole, and during the whole period, like, we kind of went backwards with less capability uh, of, of, of going of going to the moon, for instance. Uh, you know, we, we had dependent on the Soviets to get into orbit. Yeah, I think so. I think the timeline was pretty, uh, uh, pretty similar. Then. Pardon? They were the Russians by then. The Russians, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm stuck forever uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Cold War. But then, you know, really. And that, so, so if I was going to point to a single thing, it's like, wow, during the uh, pandemic, the ability to turn out these vaccines so quickly, I thought was there's so, that like we can still do things. And I thought and I, and I and I certainly was hoping and continue to hope that people will eventually look at that as we'll take a lot. We'll draw, and I, I mentioned this in the book, we'll draw a lot of lessons from the pandemic, the power of technology, the ability to, the you know, like it's really important to be a, a rich technologically advanced country when things happen. Preparation will get you only so far. And the ability to produce and innovate on the fly is really important. I'm not sure people have yet to draw that lesson from the pandemic as we're still sort of uh, hashing it all out, but I, I, I remain optimistic. So in the course of the book, you argue that the main axis of conflict during this period uh, hasn't been between the political left and the political right, but rather between two tendencies that you call upwing and downwing. So Explain those and tell us about the the man who coined those terms because he's an interesting guy. Yeah, so uh, the notion of up, again, uh, it's a it's a play on left wing and right wing, and it was uh, developed by a guy who eventually started calling himself FM twenty thirty, who is a transhumanist. Which I'm not a transhumanist, but he was a transhumanist, and he wrote a book uh, called Upwinger back in the early seventies, saying that there was that there were really these two. Uh, there's a different way to look at, at politics, which is people who sort of look to the stars and look to the sky and look to the future and thought that we could, using technology, we could solve all the great problems. Uh, and then there were those who didn't look to the sky, who just sort of, I guess, looked into the dirt and thought, like, we should not take the risk. It was not worth taking these kinds of risks. The downsides were too great. The potential for disaster was too great. We didn't have the wisdom or the capability to use technologies to solve our problems, and that those two themes are sort of reoccurring and really framed the debates in a much better way than left and right, Republican and Democrat. And I think you could see it. I mean, the example I, I, I hearken back to in the book is you know, certainly a you know, debate over nuclear power. But boy, you saw you really see those themes and the way of looking at the world. You really see it now with AI in which you have folks like myself who are like, wow, finally, like my whole life has been during the great downshift and this stagnation. Now, finally, we may have figured out a way to kind of innovate our way out of it. And other people are like, oh, the jobs, we're going to lose the jobs. And after we lose the jobs, then the robots will decide they don't need us. And then that's when the great purge of humanity will begin. And almost from the get go with chat GPT and generative AI, we've seen, you know, the media tends to focus more on one than the other. Uh, but we've seen those two themes sort of reawaken. And uh, obviously, they, they never they have never gone away. And I imagine that's going to be the great sort of conflict in my professional life for the rest of it. So uh, this upwing versus downwing opposition is very similar to the dynamism versus stasism dichotomy sure. that, 
Virginia Postrel drew in her late nineties book, the future and its enemies. So had you read that book? Was that, was- I, I did, I did. I have, I know Virginia. Well, we've been doing a little bit of a, uh, when the book came out, my book came out, we did a little bit of a road show. We had an incidental accidental road show where we did a lot of, uh, 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 you know, forums and panels with each other. Very, a very influential book, which I would also recommend buying though. Uh, if you already haven't, it's a, it's a fantastic book. So you don't ignore the left-right distinction uh, because, after all, you call the book the conservative futurist. But uh, I have to say that your brand of conservatism differs uh, you know, fairly starkly uh, from the, the main varieties currently on offer. Uh, I'll list a few of your heterodoxies. You're in favor of doubling uh, government R&D. You think vaccines are good. Um, you support urban density. You're pro-immigration. You're for investing more in public education to improve teacher quality. You talk about improving the safety net, maybe with a basic income, maybe with wage subsidies. And you favor uh, big government projects like colonies on the moon or observatories on the moon or space elevators. So what kind of conservative are you? And do you feel that the the distance between you and sort of the the center of of conservative opinion has grown uh, over the, you know, over the past decade or so uh, with the rise of populism and or do you feel like uh, that the conservative futurists are legion on the right? I don't think I don't I don't think they're legion on the right. I feel very comfortable uh, making that statement. The um, I, I mean I, I certainly again speaking of titles of books, I can certainly see a, a a a scenario where the book was just called like Upwing. But you know I you know I'm. Uh, I do still self describe myself as a conservative. I work at American Enterprise Institute, a con, you know, certainly what's called a conservative think tank. And so I guess it was kind of true, truth and labeling. And it makes kind of for a fun tension. The notion that people think of conservatives, at least the probably certainly the general public as people want to keep things the same. They look backward, certainly the sort of populist variety, a lot of nostalgia for an imagined version, I think, of the uh, of the 1950s and 60s for the kind of like, you know, nuclear family and a kind of a pre-1965 racial makeup before the big, you know, immigration opening back in the 60s. But I, I my version of conservatism is really about is about preserving something, but it's not about sort of preserving like the way America looked in 1955 or 1963. It's about preserving, I think, the liberal inheritance of the past that, that, that said something about individual rights, personal freedom, economic freedom, markets. That inheritance, that sort of liberal inheritance is what I want to sort of not just preserve, but hopefully build upon and then bequeath to the futures. That's really, that's the future part. I think those are the pillars, I think, upon which like a better world can be created better than this one, a better country. And I would like to like reinforce those foundations, uh, which may be crumbling in spots. So that's, and, and again, uh, I think, you know, Burke talked about this connection that we have in mean, Burke, this connection between the past, present and future, this, and that's, that's the connection. Like, so that's like, you know, you joke like I, I did a bad job of, you know, predicting the fall of the Soviet Union. Well, my my future isn't about predicting the future. It's trying to use those tools and policies, which I think are sync nicely with that philosophy to build a future that we would want to live in. Uh, not, you know, an organically bottom up based on all our decisions not because not with a ministry of you know, not with the Department of the Future in Washington D.C., where everybody on the tenth floor has is in a big room with giant video screens and looking at like demographic trends, and now we're planning the future. But by our decisions and government doing the kinds of things that it can do well and hopefully do better in the future, that we can really create a great future if we just start making some better decisions. So you have some uh, fellow travelers on the center left who these days are are. are focused on trying to revive technological and economic dynamism and clear government obstacles that are standing in the way and and revive government capabilities that are needed to make the push. So uh, uh, we call these folks the supply-side progressives. Is it a movement? I don't know. It's For sure, it's two guys. It's Ezra Klein <laughs> yeah. uh, and Derek Thompson. Wait, before, you can get three guys, before you get three people, you need two people. So there you go. Um, so... Uh, but but I uh, they they're they're prominent uh, and articulate spokesmen for their ideas and and I think that you know there there is uptake uh, and there is I think on the center left there has been a 
a real shift on housing towards yimbyism and recognizing that that government regulatory barriers are actually are actually thwarting progressive goals of housing affordability and on energy uh, the the exigencies of making a clean energy transition are now making people on the center left recognize that these days environmentalism doesn't mean stopping everything from getting built it means building new stuff new cleaner better stuff and building it in a hurry so that the whole mindset of downwing environmentalism is at odds with the needs of a of you know of cleaning up the environment and dealing with climate change so so there is i think a real movement there on the center left so do you see real sort of you know kindred spirits there or is there like something standing in the way that that keeps you from from really teaming up with folks like that you know you gotta take your friends where you can find them and i would love if these friends you know were you know you know were would uh admit some you know some culpability in creating a world where it is very hard to do things in the real world. But, you know, such, such, such as it is, you know, I, I, part of the book, I talk about the creation of like this upwing pro abundance, you know, you know, party. I think that's unlikely. I think we will remain to be a two party system. I just hope the bits of both parties can be bigger that still that want to, you know, that, that, that look at immigration as as an asset, immigrants as an asset, and look at trade as a good thing. That those parts of those parties could get bigger and work together frequently. So I, I you know, I, I hope that there will be more issues. And listen, and boy, if if folks on the right and left can work together on something like housing, like that's not an insignificant thing. That is a major thing to, to be of sort of more one mind about housing or energy, a pretty significant. Like, I think you can disagree about the optimum capital gains tax rate or, uh, or, or funding of the ACA there. I tell you, you can, you know, you know, hash that out. But boy, if you get like housing and energy pretty much correct, that is fundamental. I think going to matter more whether the top tax rate is, you know, you know, 42%, 49%, 52%. I think those things matter, but you know, all that other stuff, you know, where, how people live, the energy flowing into their homes. Again, get those big things right. And there's other debates while well, we can worry about them when we have them. So in your historical narrative, you describe sort of upwing America 1.0, this period from the mid fifties to the early seventies as it serves in your narrative as the kind of golden age from which we fell. Do you have personal memories of that? You were only six when the great downshift started, or is this, so this, this is all from reading for you or just, or just from, you know, childhood memories of the seventies and recognizing that the seventies had felt like a falling off. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, you're right. My, you know, my, I don't have a lot of personal memories and I, th- I think it's important that, you know, when we talk about I, I, like years older than you, so I, I, the, you do. The, the Apollo 11 moon landing, I was seven years old and it completely rocked my world. Uh, it was, you know, a, absolutely a transformative event for me. And uh, so, uh, and, you know, my dad subscribed to popular science and popular mechanics. And every month, you know, the new issue would come in and they were always about flying cars or <laughs> right. anything like that. So, so I, I was absolutely in that world. And, and, and that's what, you know, of course, I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be the first man on Mars. So then the, the 70s to me just felt like a, like a total existential betrayal, right? Every, the, the future that I had grown up, my little boy dreams got dashed, you know, quickly. Well, uh, I, th- I, I think my first memory of any kind of major event was probably Watergate because I because <laughs> because uh, I think Nixon ended up resigning as we were on a trip to Wisconsin or something. So I certainly have a very clear memory of the Mars landing. But I think it's important that like when we talk about sort of, you know, the 1960s and nostalgia to me it's not it is not nostalgia for like the world of the 1960s to me it's nostalgia for the attitude and the expectations and the hope like i don't want to go that's like a difference i think between what i'm talking about and sort of sort of the the populace particularly on the right but we also have them on the um on the far left that that world is not a world i want to return to for a lot of people not a very good world at all a, a world of a world of a lot of discrimination and a lack of opportunity but what i like is the, like the optimism people had and i it, it's stunning that it, it wasn't just sort of like your your public intellectual futurist sci-fi writer, writers you know, asimov and arthur c clark who saw great things but like 
everybody did. There was a wonderful conference I write about where you had, you know, CEOs and government officials, think tankers, and they all pretty much agreed that like the the buoyant economic of the 60s, like that, that was locked in. So we can worry about other things, but we were, you know, as long as we didn't end up killing ourselves with nuclear weapons, uh, that growth and all the things that would stem from that growth and that progress, that was just going to happen. And there's a very famous book, Future Shock by Alvin Toffler in 1970, that growth was going to be so phenomenal, it was going to drive us all nuts that that was going to be the problem. But the real future shock was like, we didn't get it. My favorite parts of your book where you you went and dug up these old uh, uh, Rand Corporation and Hudson Institute projections of life in the 21st century. And, you know, they're uh, they really are they're They are, you know, hopped up on Jetson's mania. Right. They, are, <laughs> they have drunk the Kool-Aid completely. It's uh, it is. It's just astonishing to read. Not not just, you know, hypesters, but buttoned down, serious, sober analysts who who just saw that we were on a completely tr- different trajectory than, than the one we ended up, you know, uh, than the one we ended up on. But uh, Atomic age plus space age, uh, work, <laughs> working together, there was nothing that we couldn't do. So, so, yeah, I always like to be clear that, you know, that why I talk about those decades, I don't want to go back to them. Sure. There's a TV series you, you talk about, you're a big fan of, I am too, For All Mankind, where... Uh, one little quirk of history basically stops uh, the great downshift from happening. Uh, not completely, but but significantly, right? Uh, and that is that the uh, the Soviets beat us to the moon, and therefore we don't stop the space program, and we don't basically surrender our technological dynamism. We keep competing, uh, and that that process just changes history in a whole bunch of different ways to keep the whole ball rolling. I, I don't think that one thing would have been enough to uh, to forestall things, but is it's a it, it is a wonderful uh, uh, bit of, you know, counterfactual history uh, and, and a very fun series. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I tell you, I, cause I, I mean, I think there were sort of external macro reasons that caused that, that, that downshift. And to some extent, we're still uh, contending with, which is, you know, the, you know, uh, you know, these sort of great inventions of the past. We had sort of extracted the big gains out of like the internal combustion engine. You know, everywhere we can put an internal combustion engine, we have one. Or electrification. You know, every factory has, you know, electricity and uses it. And so, like, so we need to come up like with new stuff, new things that would further push forward our economy and and, and our civilization. And I think we underestimated like the difficulty of, of, of doing that, uh, especially the difficulty of doing that when you don't want to spend as, you know, spend as much money on basic science, when you make it very difficult to innovate in the real world, uh, which are two really bad decisions. So I think the, yeah, these other factors which have always happened, what we had control over, again, it were, were our responses to this sort of changing macro situation. It took us a while to figure out that something had gone wrong. Uh, and once we did, I think we just underestimated the task uh, ahead of us. Because listen, we've had presidents talk about, we need to grow faster and we need to have this revolution and we need to have uh, hydrogen cars. But what we really needed was sort of a whole of society recognition and effort that to create a much more prosperous future like there were a lot of things that needed to be done and our efforts just, I think, weren't up to the task as much as I, as much as I love lower tax rates. <laughs> that's, uh, so that's, that's one part of the picture, right? Which is that, that uh, growth got harder uh, and, yeah. and it, it got a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. Uh, and, and part of that is, I think, the, I, I buy the story that Robert Gordon tells in the rise and fall of American economic growth, if that's the correct title. Anyway, that basically in the late 1800s, early 1900s, we developed a whole series of general purpose technologies, electric, electricity, internal combustion engine, plastics, and, and modern material science. Uh, and then, you know, you got film and TV, just a, a whole host of, of, rev, of, of innovations that then, you know, spread out into developing multiple industries, right? So that they opened up terrain for entrepreneurial exploration and commercialization, whole continents for, for entrepreneurs to explore and, and settle. Whereas in our era, we've had one big one, right? The information technology revolution. So we just, we've, that growth has been harder uh, because we've exhausted the low hanging fruit of the industrial era and we haven't quite gotten to, to anything, 
to grounds quite as lush and, and full of opportunity as, as the ones we, uh, we previously exploited. Uh, so that's part of it. But then, then there was a real intellectual turn, you know, turbocharged by the environmental movement, uh, but, with, but, but with much deeper roots than that. Uh, and that is, so you and I both think of ourselves as technological optimists, but neither of us believes that means that there's no downsides to technology and that technology can never come back and bite us, right? But, but you know, in at the sort of height of technological optimism in the 19th century, where prog- the, the ideal of progress was at its sort of most widespread and most naive, just the idea it's all upside, just all upside, that got crushed in the, in the trenches of World War I uh, to see industrialized slaughter you know, did a number on the Western mind that we've never really recovered from uh, and that, that called into question progress with a capital P in a big, big way. Yeah. Then, then our follow-up acts, you know, were the Holocaust and the development of the uh, nuclear you know, weapons that could destroy all of humanity. So this idea that, that technology has a dark side only got emphasized over the course of the 20th century. Then in the 60s, you had this dawning recognition that we had, you know, really befouled uh, the natural world in the process of getting rich. Uh, and you allude to uh, the, the Santa Barbara oil spill as, as, a, as a big sort of zeitgeist shifting moment. And, and I remember, I remember that, ah. the, you know, all, all those, the TV footage of the birds covered in oil and everything. Uh, so there was a, just a, you know, a real turn uh, of an anti-technology turn. Uh, and in my substack, the permanent problem, I refer to this as the, the anti-Promethean backlash, that a real intellectual opposition to technology. Technology is hubris. It's, it's you know, Dr. Frankenstein creating the monster. We're, you know, dabbling in powers we're not mature enough to handle. Uh, we need to calm down and slow down and, you know, uh, live smaller and humbler. So that that was a huge intellectual development in the 60s and 70s and one that that you and I both decry completely. Oh, but I don't I'm, I'm not sure it was avoidable. It seems like it was almost inevitable. I think um, I think probably a correction uh, uh, was unavoidable. I certainly think an environmental movement where people begin to focus more on the downsides of progress and and new technologies. I mean, that's that's almost a universal finding that as countries get richer, they begin to think about like, not just we have to build factories, but like what that factories is, you know, spewing out into the local, local rivers. But did we have to have not just this version of an environmental movement, but, but this level of an overcorrection for this long? I mean, I certainly think like that intellectual backlash, I think, had like an unholy merging with our popular culture such that today when we have a, a new technology, which could solve a lot of problems, the, 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 the cultural uh, touchstone is the Terminator movies. In every story, you know, you'll see about AI, they'll, they'll make maybe just a, a glancing reference or maybe just an image to image to illustrate the story of a, of a killer robot. So I think it was really the merging of these two things in a unique way and a sustained way is such that, you know, even with these new advances, Hollywood's ignoring the upside. I mean, they, they're, they're ignoring, uh, I mean, there was just this on Apple TV plus there's this, uh, there was a mini series called extrapolations, in which they extrapolated the environmental, uh, you know, the climate change, but there's nothing in there about nuclear power at all. Like they, it just didn't make it into, in, into their worldview. So it's going to take, I think, a while, if ever, to change. How, but yeah, I think I think the deep question is not like why the downshift happened. It's just like why it was so sustained. And I do think these cultural things matter. It's not just like what our officials did in Washington, but but what what we believe as a society. Oh, I, I agree. I agree profoundly. You know, you can picture it's theoretically possible to imagine an environmental movement that arose and said, hey, man, we're we're messing up the planet. But that's a technological problem and there's technological fixes. And so we just need to buckle down. And so the problem, you know, the the solution to technological problems is more technology and let's keep going. So one, one can imagine an upwing environmental movement, you know, led by Hudson Institute visionaries <laughs> and so forth. But, you know, for that to have happened, the other side of the environmental debate, the big business lobby would have had to be on board with that, which it wasn't, right? It was It was really, we don't really have environmental problems. All this cleanup is going to bankrupt us. So it was, you had 
you had a, you know, this thesis and antithesis and the synthesis, which is, you know, to that there really are environmental problems. They really are serious and really have to deal with them, but not by uh, wearing a hair shirt and giving up on capitalism, but rather by, you know, by turning capitalism up to the next level. Uh, that synthesis, uh, it just, there's no way it could have emerged immediately. It, it, so I, I, I agree it's taken infernally long, but, uh, but it, it had to shake out over time. Well, I certainly think, right. So you had, you had a, you know, simultaneously, you know, sort of this loss of trust, you know, due to the Vietnam War and then Watergate, as I mentioned earlier, in, in the idea that these elites had our, had our best interests at heart, that we could trust them. And certainly the, the argument against the Vietnam War, it was also, it was an argument against, became arguments against big everything, the universities, government, the businesses who were, you know, building the weapons, what some technological thinkers back there called like the mega machine, that all these parts are all, sort of conspiring together to create an, an America, an artificial America we really you know, wouldn't want to live in. At the same point, boy, if we would have just got the nuclear part of it right, you know, yeah. you know, if we would have got that part right and other countries, they got it more right. You know, the, you know, France, for instance, that I think that alone, if we could have taken, you know, like, you know, climate change sort of off the table as part of the debate. I think things would have been better. I think I think if we would have made if we would have followed up Project Apollo with Project something else big yeah. and amazing and there were some you know ideas, I think that would have helped. And I also have to, you know, admit that you know how little these kinds the kinds of regulatory issues I talk about just were not major items on like the people you would trust to deregulate uh you know folks you know folks on the right I mean, there have not been presidential candidates saying we need to change a national environmental policy act. Like they, you know, NEPA, like they have not been calling for that. So I think there was a, you know, I think there was a failure, uh, a failure there as well. But I think, you know, I think, I hope, I hope now that like, and you mentioned, you know, some of the, uh, the supply side progressives that there is a recognition that whatever you want to do in this country, you can't do it. If it involves the real world, you can't do it. And we have, and part of that is, removing barriers. And part of that is also doing the things that I hope most people on the left right can agree on, like government doing more science, like that's something it should do. Let's do more of that. So you've got growth getting harder. Then you've got this ideological reaction. Then I think really diffusely, you have this cultural turn in under conditions of mass affluence. I call it loss aversion. Yeah. Uh, just that we've got a lot of stuff. We don't want to lose it. It's really unusual now for somebody to die young. It's a tragedy and awful. And so we really, really want to take care of our health and, and don't want to die prematurely because our expectations are so high. So there has been a dramatic turn. And again, I can chart it over the course of my boyhood. I, I told my kids when I was bringing them up that I grew up, you know, back before we invented safety, uh, that we, uh, <laughs> you know, no seat belts and riding in the back of, in the bed of a pickup truck and, monkey bars and jungle gyms and candy cigarettes and all the rest. Uh, yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> Similar experience. To me, that that feels like so deeply ingrained in in just as a consequence of, of, of our success that you and I want American society and, and American technological establishment to continue to be lean and hungry. But for it to be as lean and hungry as you and I want it to be, it needs the support of a broader lean and hungry culture that I'm not sure exists or will can ever be revived to your and my satisfaction. Right. I mean, I think the I think the uh, the wisest prediction will be that nothing will much change. Maybe a little bit, but nothing will, will much change. That's always that's always a very good prediction, a very safe prediction. But I think there are factors at play here which. May, give me more hope. I mean, to me, there is no more effective argument to make in Washington, D.C. right now is we need to do this because we are now involved in a life and death global struggle with a geopolitical rival far more capable than the, than the old Soviet Union, which is China. Who do you, you want this to be the Chinese century? What that's what is that going to look like? So fine, we won't spend any more money on R and D. We'll make it hard to build nuclear reactors. Fine, guess where it's not hard to do that stuff. China, you're you're handing it to them. I think that is 
it's an easy argument. Some people call it a cheap argument. I think it's an effective argument. And I think people will continue to make it. I think that is a tailwind. I think the realization that if we want to do something about climate change, if you think there needs to be some sort of energy transition, uh, that what we have is a, an inability to build clean energy problem. I think that is a tailwind. If the people who don't care about China, maybe they care about you know the, the climate. And for them, they come up with a, a, a new path forward, which to me seems far more likely than telling people to live less well and telling poor people in the world, you'll never live like we do. That to me, that's a dead end. So I think if you're concerned about climate change or this geopolitics, I think those are two very, I think, compelling arguments and compelling tailwinds. And then, and then of course, for the, you know, uh, you know, people like me, you know, I don't need much convincing, but the ability to deal better with a, whether for a big existential risk, whether it's a pandemic or a giant comet headed toward earth. Listen, if I ran for president, I ran for president, like on that top five list would be planetary defense. I know not everybody would think that, but I think that's extremely important. So I think there are, are these tailwinds and maybe the greatest is, listen, we just saw what it's like. We've seen since what it's like, what this country looks like after a decade of very slow economic growth. It's not a pretty picture. And I remember, and then I talk a lot about the sixties. Listen, in the nineties, we had rising inequality, but there were, but there was not the sort of obsession about it because the economy was booming. Everybody, you know, it was, it really was a rising tide lifts all boats. And to me, that shows that if you think your life is getting better, you're not going to care quite so much that some people's lives are getting better faster. So I, I agree with you that, that geopolitics and climate change can both be forcing agents uh, that, that they can sharpen the incentives to get serious about technological dynamism. Of course, that could be also a setup for failure, but I, I, I see them as, as, as absolutely capable of galvanizing at least net narrow business and technological elites to, to focus on these pressing problems. Whether they're powerful enough to, to produce the kind of deeper cultural changes that I think would produce a, a genuinely pro-progress culture that, that I'm, I'm more doubtful of. And, and so I, what I see is I'm persuaded that, that there are a bunch of dazzling new technologies on the horizon, and at least some of them are going to pan out. But I worry that, that on the cultural side, uh, the, the dysfunctions that we have developed will mean that, we're, that even though we have a very high-tech society, it will be a much less progressive and you know, well-accomplished and flourishing society than it should be with all that great tech. Uh, so j- just to, uh, you know, on my substack, The Permanent Problem, my thesis that I uh, have explored in essay after essay is that, is that capitalism has succeeded in producing mass material prosperity, uh, but translating that into mass flourishing, what we might call mass spiritual prosperity, uh, hasn't gone nearly as well. And a big reason for that in, in my telling of the story is that mass material prosperity induces various cultural responses that end up leading away from flourishing. They lead away from the dynamism we need to keep technological progress rolling, and they lead away from the inclusiveness that enmeshes our lives and those strong personal connections that uh, give us uh, purpose and meaning. Um, so I see this kind of, right now, this kind of contest between our technological wizardry and our and our cultural dysfunctions and, and what... The, the wizardry brings wonderful new possibilities into reach, and then the dysfunctions grab them away. And I'll give you just a couple of recent examples. So mm-hmm. we, we've talked about both of them. In 2020, we invent a miracle mRNA vaccine in a weekend, right? So all the experts were saying it's going to take years, but they did it in a weekend, right? It took months to test it, but they, they had it in a couple of days. But then hundreds of thousands of people died anyway, because they swallowed some insane conspiracy theory and refused to take the vaccine. Right. So their technological wizardry gives us the miracle, and yet our culture is so dysfunctional that we can't take advantage of it. Now, this past year, we've been confronted with astonishing leaps in artificial intelligence. Just trying to keep up with the new developments every week, every day, is like drinking from a fire hose. Uh, and yet, public opinion polls show that the people who are more concerned than excited about AI outnumber those who are more excited than concerned by five to one. So, you know, you talk in your book about the problems of downwing culture and you even broach the possibilities of, of so-called social limits to growth that affluence can just lead to so much complacency and risk aversion that progress grinds to a halt. 
So on a scale of one to 10, uh, how, how worried are you <laughs> that the culture uh, can, can undo even these tailwinds that uh, or, or at least severely undermine uh, the, the benefits that we're going to get from these dazzling new technologies? Uh, you know, past performance does not guarantee future results, but uh, I think I think it's a it can be a uh, it can be instructive. So my I would be highly worried. I it would be eight nine. I'm not going to say ten, but I'm extremely concerned. And I view sort of like the purpose of the rest of my professional life is probably like fighting this battle. Listen, I was too young to fight nuclear in, in favor of nuclear. But now I think this, I think now, I think these, these impulses, I think reinforced just by sort of human nature uh, and sort of the, the, the risk aversion of human nature, it could be a very near thing about how much we do, the number of good decisions that we make. Um, yeah, I hope though, I think people, again, they need to be able to imagine realistically, like what this will do for them. If it's just job loss, and all these other kind of scary sci-fi risks from killer robots, then it's going to be a really a losing battle. But I think if people can see in their lives, oh, the economy seems to have sped up and I'm getting a bigger raise. I think like that actually matters. I think hearing from someone on 60 Minutes who's going to be cured of sickle cell disease because of this, or you're going to know someone who is cured of, you know, macular degeneration who can see now. Or I think if there can be tangible rewards other than just social media and other than just, you know, maybe just economic statistics, I think that will matter. So right now, I think people can't imagine. And again, the culture plays a role since we don't even try to show them even in sci-fi, like how it all could work out. That isn't a disaster. That would be, that's kind of why I like for, uh, for all mankind, because it doesn't show a utopia, but it shows a world where, guess what? We've, we, we're solving problems where, you know, have nuclear fusion and, you know, that, you know, and we and climate change is no longer an issue. So the book isn't utopian, but is about solving problems and better. If people think like, yeah, this stuff is adding up to something that will make the world a better place for at least for my kids and more opportunity and less concern that they're going to live on a cinder. Uh, hopefully, you know that will be enough. So uh, let me flag for for readers, future readers of the conservative futurist. Some of the best parts of the book, I think, are where you're talking through how do we how do we get out of this downwing culture? How do we what can we do? Because usually when you have a cultural explanation for a social problem, that's sort of a conversation stopper. Well, can't do anything. There's no policies that are going to work because the problem's upstream from policy. It's in the culture. And what do you do? But you've got some ideas for sort of turning the cultural air traffic carrier carrier, you know, slightly bending it in, in a better direction over time. You talk a lot about the need for more optimistic sci-fi. Uh, and I think that's that that ability to imagine a brighter future really is important. Uh, you talk about uh, reviving world's fairs. Uh, that again is you know a stimulant to the imagination. Going you know walking around and seeing hey the future can be cooler than than the uh, than the present in a tangible way. Those apparently haven't gone out of style everywhere in the world. They just uh, it's been a long time since they've mattered in the United States. And then you have this really interesting idea of the counterpart uh, to a the doomsday clock uh, from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. They're always telling us how many minutes it is until midnight and the world ends. Uh, but you've got an idea for a Genesis clock. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, this is something I think I'm actually going to try to do. <laughs> you know, Hey, I don't work at a think tank. I work at a do tank. Mm. So <laughs> this is something we're going to try to do, uh, which is uh, rather than, you know, sort of as the doomsday clock is kind of look at all the bad things that started out looking weird about nuclear war. Now they focus on, Nuclear war, the environment, AI, you know, everything. I want a clock that rather than showing us minutes to midnight, minutes to like a new dawn of like human prosperity and human achievement. And look at try to look at some really, you know, substantial markers. Like how many people are leaving deep poverty? Uh, how are we doing on curing various diseases? Certainly economic growth and, and, and income growth. Uh, are we... Uh, uh, lessening the amount of carbon or even pulling out carbon from the atmosphere, a whole list of things that we can look at these sort of metrics and say, yeah, you know what? Maybe now we can move that. We can move it toward that clock, that Genesis clock, maybe 90 seconds closer to a dawn where we will have solved like being able to uh, divert an asteroid headed toward earth or come up with a universal vaccine for this or that. 
and showing people, yes, pro- I mean, so many people don't know about the progress that has been made, whether it's, you know, obviously like the reduction in global poverty. People, so many people still unaware of that and think people are getting poorer and poorer. And something which is, in a way, maybe the, you know, the great secular miracle of our time has happened. So I think a way to get that message across to people, um, I think, would be really effective. I That's hope. great. Let me uh, let me let me close with with one more sort of dark cultural cloud on the horizon. And the one I think is really the gravest challenge to an upwing future. The more I think about it, and that is the global fertility collapse. So. When I was a kid, we were worried about the population bomb and uh, an overpopulation uh, and uh, somebody wished on a monkey's paw. And uh, now we've got uh, now we've got the opposite problem, uh, which is birth rates actually uh, peaked in the early 60s and, and have been falling ever since. Fertility peaked in the early 60s and have been falling ever since. Uh, it peaked at something like five births per woman uh, and five plus it's now down to 2.3 globally. 2.1 is replacement in rich countries. More than half of the world now lives in countries with sub-replacement fertility. Population is actually now declining in uh, Japan, Italy, and China. Evidence is mounting uh, that just slowing population growth and slowing labor force growth are very bad uh, for productivity growth, very bad for innovation. So what happens uh, when we're not just having slow growth, but we're actually shrinking. Now, the United States with immigration can can avoid this for quite some time. But still, in a broader global picture of, of stagnant or shrinking population, which has just not been part of the human experience, certainly through all of modernity and really only with tiny little hiccups for the past 10,000 years, this strikes me as an unbelievably huge change that's coming our way that people aren't talking about nearly as much as they ought to, given the impact it's going to have on everything. But how does this factor into your, I don't think you talk about that in the book, but but this is a big shadow that's, that's looming over the future in my book. And I want your thoughts about it. Maybe one reason I'm talking about it. I don't have a. I don't have any great policy prescriptions. Uh, uh, certainly, and I, and uh, certainly some work some of the folks at AI have done. I whatever the uh, the worst case scenarios, those seem likely to happen as far as uh, declining. I mean, I would I would take the, like the low numbers uh, as far as that goes. I, I think policies to encourage people to have more kids. I think. I, I don't think those would, will be decisive in any way. One thing I, can, I think one thing I can say that it's very important for places which have shown an ability to harness human talent and reward it and get great things out of people. That's really important that like those pe- those places have more people and we make it easy to come to those places. Uh, I, I was listening to a, a talk one time by Elon Musk. Who is you know uh, the you know the uh, uh, the SpaceX the, the the Tesla Elon Musk <laughs> love that Elon Musk a lot uh, I, I'm less interested in uh, the social media Elon Musk um, but he said if there's a if you want to do something great with your life there's no better place to come to than the United States of America and I think so not only have we shown an ability to help people achieve like great things and which could be start a company or it could just be you know raise their living standards and give more opportunity to their kids. So not only have we shown an ability to do that, we've shown an ability where a place people want to come to. And, it, you know, as these population stresses become more obvious, everybody's going to have the same idea. But I don't think that people are going to want to come to Brazil with the same enthusiasm as they want to come to the United States. So if you want to come here, we should we should help you come here. So at least the, the place where you're likely we're likely to turn that. And this sounds like the, you know, nefarious economist way of talking where we're likely to get the most out of that human capital and out of that talent. The world is going to need that. The world is going to need a high functioning, high capacity United States. And I would love that. I, I would hope we're not alone, but we at least we at least need that. So that's what's, that's my minor contribution to that. Okay. Well, you, you've also made another minor contribution because uh, let's close on a personal note. The global fertility collapse is occurring with absolutely no help from the Pethokoukos family. So you've, you've got a lot of kids, don't you? How many? Uh, we uh, we have uh, we have seven kids, uh, six girls, uh, a boy, 
and uh, uh, he just ranging. Uh, we, 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 this was not. This was not a. Uh, we're. This was not. We did not feel it was our duty to the nation, <laughs> our duty to the state to do. It may have some positive effect, yeah. uh, but we just love kids. That's great. That's wonderful. Uh, how old are they? From what are the? Uh, they, uh, well, they're getting a little older, so they range uh, from uh, from 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 se- from seventeen uh, to the late thirties. So okay. uh, yeah, so I already uh, got a couple of I already have a uh, uh, grand twins. You're on the verge of getting them all out of the house. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully, no backsies, no yeah. backsies. Stay <laughs> away. <laughs> That's a magnificent accomplishment. Uh, and on that score, uh, let me salute you and let me uh, once again. Keep praise upon your new book, The Conservative Futurist, and urge uh, everyone to go out and buy it and read it. But especially, oh, thanks so much. especially buy it. <laughs> especially buy it. Buy an extra copy. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Thank you much. Thanks for listening to the Permanent Problem Podcast. Check out my essays on the permanent problem over on Substack, as well as at the Scannon Center website. And be sure to catch all our episodes on Substack, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you love tuning in. Until next time, I'm Brink Lindsay, signing off.